Herman Melville wrote famously of the white whale. He is less known for his final novel, The Confidence Man, a riverboat tale of grifting and greed lodged in the heart of the American dream. Those inclinations, based not on e pluribus unum, but the belief that there's a sucker born every minute, are as alive today as they were when Melville dramatized them before the Civil War. Our story takes place not on the Mississippi, but on the shores of the Patapsco in the city of Baltimore. A boomtown from its 1661 founding through the 1940s, Baltimore once housed nearly a million residents, built ships and rolled steel, brewed beer and shipped freight. But after 1950, the city declined, shedding factories and their jobs as racial blockbusting sent white residents to surrounding suburbs and saddled African-American residents with high mortgages and deteriorating homes. Poverty rates soared, drug addiction and violence surged, and even building collapses became routine. With just 611,000 residents by 2017, Baltimore creaked under the weight of some 40,000 vacant buildings and a murder rate that had reached war zone levels. As in The Confidence Man, our story focuses on a stranger whose sudden appearance forces us to consider how far we should go and discover what is real, what is rumor, and what really matters in a city where just about any idea steeped in hope seems like a viable plan. So how is everybody today? That doesn't sound good. Try this again. How's everybody today? Okay, there we go. Better. This is Kahan Dillon, a Fairfax County, Virginia developer, speaking at a real estate conference in Baltimore City. At the time of this recording, Kahan is 37 years old. He stands about 5 feet, 9 inches tall, and has a portly build which is outlined by the fine business suits he regularly wears. His beard is thick, yet well-groomed, and he dons a turban, which is dictated by his Sikh faith. 87% of the revitalization in the city is taking place in and around the Inner Harbor. That means only 13% is taking place in the rest of the city. And guess what the population represents in the other part of the city? 3% of the population is in the Inner Harbor. 97% of the 621,000 people who live in Baltimore City is outside of the Inner Harbor. And that means they're only getting 13% of the revitalization. That's a huge problem. So bringing parity to the disparity was first and foremost in my mind. Second of all- It's early summer, 2017, and Kahan is garnering a good deal of attention for a citywide redevelopment plan he was proposing. He wanted to work with the city to develop 70 locations, five in each of the 14 city council districts. According to Kahan, this plan would generate 45,000 jobs, over $150 million in tax revenue, and $10 billion of new economic development. Time and everything else, but because I've been through this, I've been, you know, in the development realm 
in the development field now for 14 years. And, you know, I was fortunately mentored by some of the best of the best in the business. So, you know, I've done a lot in a short amount of time, but, you know, I, uh, I realized that, you know, Baltimore, it took a lot for Baltimore to get into the position it's in, and it's going to take even more to get out. So basically, it was a big was proposal, one night I sat twice as large as the largest single development project ever proposed in the city. But as laudable and legitimate as it all sounded, everything was not as it seemed. <clears throat> check, check. <clears throat> okay. So what do I think of Kahan Dillon? Well, if there's one word that pops into my mind, it's mysterious. That is Richard Yeagley, the producer for this story. I first heard about Kahan through a source, a guy who doesn't want to be named in the story, but who is both connected in local politics and real estate. As this unnamed source described, a colleague of his introduced him to Kahan. So my source agrees to meet with him at a restaurant in Fells Point early on a Friday morning. He arrives first and waits for Kahan, who shows up 20 minutes late. When he does arrive, Kahan comes in with an entourage of four to five well-dressed people it was quite the spectacle. Here you have Kahan, a guy with a rather big pot belly who, because he's a Sikh, wears a turban, being accompanied by a posse who, as my source described, looked like secret service agents. It was like some foreign prince had showed up to the meeting. So Kahan and his associates take a seat around my source, and Kahan starts immediately bloviating. Instead of discussing the substance of the initiative, Kahan talks about all the problems that exist in Baltimore City that are all rooted in corruption. He spoke about how Baltimore is a pay-to-play type city, and as my source described, Kahan was dropping hints like he wanted him to help him pay-to-play. At this point, my source is skeptical. He starts wondering what's going on and what exactly he's even being pitched. Then as if he's pulling out the holy grail, Khan points to one of his guys, who pulls up a one-page presentation on his iPad and introduces my source to a 10 billion, billion with a B, 10 billion dollar development plan. They wrap up the conversation when Kahan asks my source if he wants to be a stakeholder, which the source interpreted as someone who was going to be part of the project and who could maybe make money off of it in some way. My source leaves the meeting thinking that whatever that was, he was certainly not being pitched for a development deal. He thought at the time it was some sort of con, it wasn't until a few months later that my source had a theory. 70-year-old State Senator Nathaniel Oaks, who had entered the courtroom in handcuffs, was released on his own recognizance. According to a criminal complaint, a source working with the FBI paid Oaks $15,300.
On April 7th of 2017, federal fraud and bribery charges were filed against a Baltimore state senator, Nathaniel Oakes. The government built its case on evidence gathered by Mike Henley, the alias used by an FBI informant who was portraying himself as an out-of-town business person. The informant, the government alleges, sought city contracts to develop properties by way of a minority-owned company. After Senator Nathaniel Oakes was indicted, my source read the reports. The dialogue listed in the court documents and which was reported on by the media to him sounded very much like the pay-to-play rhetoric Kahan used when they met a few months earlier. And because Kahan was presenting himself as an out-of-town developer, he was also a minority, and in general, because he was just so darn mysterious of a character, it seemed plausible that Kahan could have been working with the FBI as an informant. It should be noted that all public court documents related to FBI investigations list aliases for confidential sources. His name was not listed. So at this point in the story, all theories about Kahan Dillon being an FBI informant were just that, a theory. It wasn't until the media started to write about Kahan and his development proposal that I felt the need to look into the story. Developer sees Baltimore as blank canvas, proposes sweeping $10 billion development. That was the Baltimore Business Journal's headline on May 17th, 2017. I mean, here you have this guy who's getting press and a bunch of community support for a $10 billion development plan that he claimed was going to transform the city. Yet it all could have just potentially been a Trojan horse for an informant who was working with the FBI in a public corruption sting. So I reached out to Kahan in an email to arrange for a time for us to speak. Less than a week later, we met in person. The first time I met Kahan, I didn't bring a recorder, but I did take notes. We met at our house, which is a popular new food hall in Remington, which is a gentrifying part of town. When he arrived 30 minutes late, Kahan was easy to spot. He's of Indian Sikh descent, so he wears a turban. And in a black and white town like Baltimore, a brown-skinned man in a turban is definitely going to catch your eye. As was the case when my source met with Kahan, he showed up with a crew of people, three to be exact, all of whom wore finely tailored business suits and who spoke minimally throughout the conversation. At no point did I bring up the FBI informant rumor with him. I told him I wanted to do a story about him and his development initiative, but that I didn't know exactly where the story would go. That didn't matter to Kahan. He spoke profusely about how much I personally would benefit from documenting what he claimed was going to be the most historic development plan in the city's history. And as was the case with my source that had met with Kahan, there weren't many details about the actual development plan outside of a few general talking points. spent a good deal of time boasting about his wealth and credentials. 
In that initial meeting, he claimed his development group, the Regent Company, had revenue of 15 to 20 million dollars a year. He said he'd recently sold the smart home division of his Regent Company to a Silicon Valley firm for nine figures, and he even said he was, at the age of 15, the youngest intern in the history of Congress. Although he spoke a lot about what he had done in the past, he also was not shy in talking about the progress he had already made in Baltimore. See, he claimed he had the backing of the city council president and all but one member of the city council. He even went as far as to call his development plan bulletproof, which was a bold claim. It wasn't until a few days later that I received a call from Kahan. He told me that I had been chosen over two other people for the privilege of documenting his story. In essence, he was going to allow me to follow him and his team around during their efforts to execute this development plan, which he was now calling TBR, which stood for the Baltimore Renaissance. Near the end of our phone conversation, uh, something strange happened. So Kahan started to talk at length about how greatly he wanted to expose corruption in the city of Baltimore. Then he explained to me that there are two types of trust in the world, 100% and 0%. The implication was that in allowing me to document this story, he was giving me 100% of his trust and that he wanted 100% of mine in return. Now, am I missing something? Oh, there, no. Where'd he go? Over the summer of 2017, Yegley was invited to tag along during what Kahan was calling the stakeholder outreach process, which oddly only occurred on Fridays. Also, the only day Yegley was allowed access to Kahan and his work. So the stakeholder outreach, this historic stakeholder outreach process is reaching out to Baltimore City residents and uh, stakeholders of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, the whole nine yards. Um, everything from soup kitchen managers to the mayor herself. We are reaching out to everybody to make this the most comprehensive revitalization effort in the history of the city. And the only way to get that done properly is to make sure you reach out to everybody. And that's exactly what we're doing. There was a certain routine to these Fridays. The night before, Kahan's assistant would email me the meeting schedule, which was anywhere from 8 to 12 meetings a day. Early the next morning, I would meet with the team at the first location. We would take the meeting with me observing, and then we all hopped into a car, which happened to be a dark red Escalade with tinted windows, and we'd hit the remainder of right, the day's okay. meetings. Let's go. Come on. Come on, try. You guys just going to accompany me over there, and then we'll go from there. No place where you get in there and just hop out. Guys, you stay here, go back. Khan was always accompanied by his three associates, who he referred to as his Northern Virginia team. The team included Terrell, who was a large black guy. They called him 6'4 after his height, who was his head of security and driver. There was Lisa, a middle-aged black woman who had recently graduated from a local business school, who was his special assistant intern. 
And then there was Cajan's young vice president, David Coyman, who said he was Hispanic, but at one time wore a yarmulke to a meeting with a Jewish member of the city council. None of these team members seemed to have much experience in development at all. It was like they were learning on the fly, which was extremely odd because Kahan's plan was so ambitious. Additionally, Kahan was very controlling about the conversations I had with his associates. All of my questions needed to be pre-approved by Kahan. Needless to say, I wasn't able to get anything of substance on the record with any of them. Every stakeholder meeting followed a similar script, too. Kahan and his associates would arrive in either a public space or in a potential stakeholder's office, where Kahan would spend a majority of the time trying to build rapport and to woo his potential stakeholder. It, it has been uh, just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, we've already, you know, in the last 10 months, we've met with over 400 stakeholders. Um, we have 300 and some odd volunteers already in a database that, that we've collected in the last 10 months just to help us with any right. of these community outreach things that, we, that we've done because we're not just interested in, in the physical revitalization. Sure. We're interested in the perceptual and also building the community and because, uh, and, uh, you know, through this effort, the one thing that's most landmark about it is, is that the level of involvement from the community is even beyond anything that I think the city's ever, I mean, that we've found that the city's ever even enacted. Eventually, Kahan would pivot and allow Coyman, the VP, to present the elevator pitch from the slide deck on his laptop. All right, let me introduce you to the Baltimore Renaissance revitalization plan. After Coyman would outline the plan, Kahan would wrap things up with two requests. So every relationship is built off, I think, more importantly than words is actions. So our, our sort of, I like to leave every, every meeting with sort of an action plan. There Here is Kahan speaking to a small group of attorneys in their downtown high-rise offices. There are two things actionable that would be helpful from my standpoint to us in the organization, which we wouldn't, which wouldn't soon forget. A, we would like to have you think of, like, let's just say, we always tell people the top 10 most influential people in the city you know that you feel we should connect with. And the second thing is, um, one of the things that we, you know, our team, like, you know, we've created a very solid team. Everybody has their specific area of focus, like we talked about. You know, Mike, who introduced us, focuses on directing our healthcare relations. We don't have a general counsel yet. So for all the things we're doing... Every person he met with, he asked if they would introduce him to the 10 most influential people they knew. He also seemed to be offering people roles within this larger development plan suggesting if they came on board, there would be some sort of financial or professional gain. Um, so it sounds like, you know, there's no reason why we can't be your go-to. So from our standpoint, um, I'd like to have a follow-up discussion with you all and whoever it is that's appropriate to have that discussion with, whether it's all of us, whether it's all of us. As brash as it all seemed, this pitch was working because Kahan was connecting with some of the most powerful people in local business and politics. Those who gave Kahan the time of day included city state's attorney Marilyn Mosby, who had made a name for herself, if infamously, by indicting six police officers in the death of Freddie Gray without scoring a single conviction. Calvin Butler, the CEO of BGE, Maryland's largest utilities company, aides to U.S. Senator Chris Van Hollen, along with leaders of unions, neighborhood associations, 
and members of the city council. Lisa's very huggable. There you go. Jack of many trades. For whatever reason, and we're just meeting today, but for whatever reason, I believe this team. This is Melvin Russell, the good-natured Chief of Community Collaboration Division with the Baltimore City Police Department, as he speaks with Kahan after their stakeholder outreach meeting. And so you are yet another provision, not for me per se, but for the vision that God wants to sweep through our city. He wants to transform Baltimore. He loves Baltimore. Matter of fact, I know this and some other right. prophetic people know that he calls Baltimore his escape for the city. So everything that I have put my pan to the plow since 2008 hasn't just been for East Baltimore, for Baltimore, but hear me well, it's to raise up a model to make this city great for the entire nation. So what you're doing and what we'll do together and collaborate, the little piece that I may hold, it is for the nation. People will turn to Baltimore and say, It'll be a that's model. how you're done. Yeah, for that's the right. nation. It will be, yeah. it will be. Uh, it will can be. I get another hug? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this stakeholder outreach process allowed Kahan to meet with most of the power players in the city, including many elected officials and government employees. And as far as one could see, no one seemed suspicious of him. In fact, many people were excited by his passion for Baltimore and the citywide redevelopment plan he was proposing. So while we are waiting for um, our Vice President David Coyman to fix, to get the, uh, get the, um, to get the video up and running, I'm gonna start our meeting that was Kahan speaking to his marketing and communications team at a restaurant. This is Mike, a member of his team. So based on like what has recently happened in the last couple of days, I've got literally like hundreds of my friends asking me about like what's going on, what is this Baltimore Renaissance, this revitalization right. project. They're sending me their resumes and like I want to be a part of it. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm not even the man, I'm just fine. I'm like, I'll forward it to Kahan. <laughs> He had a group of eight to 10 professionals working as his marketing and communications team. But additional to this, he was also bringing on team members, as he called them. None of these team members were paid, but they were brought on board to specialize in a particular field. He brought on a well-known economist, a former publisher of the Baltimore Business Journal, a popular pastor in the city, and several other professionals with credentials and clout. We've had um, now over 40 calls to the office, and then we've had almost 90 emails about getting, mostly, how can I get involved? Number one has been, how can I get involved and what can I do to help? So, you know, I guess I have to say thank you to you all, you know. I mean, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you know, somebody came with a plan, somebody pushed it forward, but without a team effort, nothing, nothing happened. So, uh, you know, this is really uh, uh, something that is significant and is, a, and is a kudos to all of us for everything we've done. So I'd like for everybody to give everybody a hand. Baltimore has been tainted with such a bad image in the past few decades. So many divested parts of the city. Many people feeling left behind. Many people feeling like their city is failing them. People were looking for change and hope, and to many, that's what Kahan represented. That's how he represented himself. He was selling the salvation of Baltimore. I'm a Sikh, so for those of you know who know about Sikhism, 
It's the fifth largest religion in the world, and it's the second youngest of the top five. The reason I mention that is social justice is a big part of my faith. So when you see a social injustice happening, you're not supposed to just sit there and let it pass you by. You're supposed to do something about it. We are back at the real estate conference where we first started this episode. So what I decided to do was when I saw this disparity you know, going on in Baltimore, I started looking further into it. I wanted to further understand why the situation is what it is. Not only did Kahan tie his development plan to civil rights and economic empowerment, but he also had an origin story that was motivated by his supposed desire to combat social injustice. You know, there's a rhyme and reason for why God does everything he does. And we sometimes don't know it right away, but we find out later on and we're like, you know what, now it all makes sense. So for me, what that was, was I was driving outside the city with some banker, a banker, a real estate broker, and two developers. And they basically were, uh, you know, showing me some substantive real estate opportunities because last year I sold a division of my company for eight, for eight figures. So basically at that point I had more money than I had ever had before, but I didn't really know where I wanted to invest it. So in any event, what I was doing is as I was driving outside the city, I kept seeing all these benches. I wish I would have brought a picture of the bench, but everybody knows it. Baltimore, the greatest city in America. So, you know, every, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but everybody I see on the benches doesn't look like they're doing so great. Kahan was marketing himself as a real estate developer with a social conscience. And people were buying in to what he was selling. The promises he was making were attractive. His energy was exciting and his motivations, they seemed to be morally rooted. If he was an FBI informant and this whole Baltimore Renaissance development plan was just a ruse, well, well, then it's a pretty darn good ruse. Town of the Big House is produced, written, and edited by Richard Yagley. Narration by Stefan Sabatic. Music by Kenji Ueda. Additional writing by Rafael Alvarez and Edward Erickson. Additional field production work by Malachi Brodus, Alan Irwin, and Tarek Mansour, and additional marketing services by Jessica Yen.